Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Bill Pfeiffer and Wayne Arvidson, Global Director of Market Development and Strategy at Dell Technologies. Wayne has worked in images since the beginning of his career and has experienced three major technology inflection points in the process. He is an expert in computer vision, and he and Bill discuss key use cases for computer vision at the edge in depth. The two also ponder the future of the industry, privacy and security, and generative AI. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations, across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so that you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com slash edge for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now please enjoy this interview between Bill Pfeiffer and Wayne Arvidson, the Global Director of Market Development and Strategy at Dell Technologies. So Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. I know you've got a lot of activity in computer vision, and that's what we're here to talk about primarily. But let's talk a little bit about history. How did you get started in technology? So, you know, I guess as a as a kid, I always liked taking things apart and kind of understanding how they how they worked, much to the chagrin of my my family on occasion. But <laughs> um, you know, my my dad, it, you know. He worked at Bell Laboratories when he got out of the Air Force. And so he used to take me to work for when they had special events. And then they had a program called, which actually sounds pretty old now, called the Telephone Pioneers. And at the time, it was a lot of learning, you know, electronics. And we'd build these projects. We'd talk to people at Bell Labs and kind of learn things. So that's that's kind of how I first got involved in it. It's kind of a fun thing. That's amazing. I think of Bell Labs as this like amazing, older, right? But still really forward-looking exploration of all kinds of technologies. And they generated so many technologies and incubated so many technologies to have started there would be just unreal. It's kind of more like growing up like deep in Silicon Valley or something, you know? Yeah. And in, in a way... Like one of the things that I experienced was, was interesting. I learned, I learned a couple of things early on. I got, I got a key lesson. So one was, you know, my dad was an engineer and where his office was, was next to the lab. We were in there for a Christmas event one time. And all of a sudden we hear this woman's voice talking. So we poke into the lab and there's nobody in there. And you know, it's, it's basically the computer talking to my dad and the guys on, on, in his team that their testing was done and what happened. And so this is like 19, I mean, this had to be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say. Anyway, it was, <laughs> it was decades and decades ago. And it was just amazing to me that they, they had program this computer to talk to them and provide them the results of this. I mean, it, it, this is back in the late sixties, early seventies, right? Just to kind of mm-hmm. really set the, set the stage. So, you know, one lesson was, is pretty amazing what you can make a computer do, right? But these were obviously huge mainframe computers at the time. The other lesson right. was while I was there, some other gentlemen walked in because it was kind of this Christmas party thing. And he's like, what the heck, yeah, what the heck was that? And so they're explaining that, yeah, hey, we have to, instead of getting up, looking and seeing if the test is done, we program the computer to talk to us. And this guy was in the marketing department and he was like, (laughs) dang, that's pretty slick. And shortly after that, when you dialed 411, which most people aren't familiar with anymore, but when you called information, all of a sudden you didn't get an operator anymore. You got a computerized voice. So not sure if that was kind of the start of AI, right? Mm-hmm. And, and crazy cutting edge, like so many Bell Lab stories have always been. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just, just such an amazing opportunity. That's so cool. I love it. Now, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that you've been part of three technology inflections already. Can you talk about kind of what those transitions are and where you fit into them, how you saw them? Sure. I'd love to. You know, I feel, you know, one, I feel very, very fortunate 
to have been part of these these key transitions in the in the technology industry, right? You know, sometimes it's it's better to be lucky than smart. But you know, even when I was in high school, I was really interested in graphic arts and printing and the whole process. And I got really lucky in that. I went to work for my second job actually was a company that was in the print industry. They had been in the industry for almost a hundred years at the time. But they were looking at computer technology and where could computer technology be used in the in the production process. So was really a cool marriage of I couldn't make my mind up of did I want to go into computer science and computer engineering or did I want to go into printing? So I was able to get into both. Now, one of the things that we developed at that company was a technology called raster image processing, right? So literally making a computer output device kind of paint, right, across a, a sheet of, of paper. Now, what was interesting about that was we owned the font technology, and so we turned it all into a digital environment with this technology. And then we teamed up with these two little companies, both whose name began with an, with an A. One made a a language called PostScript. The other made these cool little computers, right, that were kind of breaking edge at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. And we launched a technology called desktop publishing. And not only was the technology important, but it was really important about the impact it had on the world. Because now what you're doing is taking the av- ability to develop and distribute content out of these really expensive proprietary systems and making it available to the, to the masses. So to me, that was a key communications point, not just from a technology perspective, but also from a communications perspective. So I spent a number of years there uh, working on that. The thing, as technology naturally progresses, right, we spent a lot of time incorporating in higher and higher capabilities as the underlying technology approved. So it went from black and white to color. It went from color to professional color, right? Where, you know, if you can imagine, you know, when you were doing car ads and cosmetic ads and food ads, the color had to be 100% accurate, right? So, right? so now the ability to do that on a desktop type of system was absolutely amazing, but it became mainstream. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, after a while, it was like, this is interesting stuff. But then what we started to, or I started to hear about is, you know, gee, maybe this could be applied to video technology. So I left that company and I went to a, a startup company. And what they had done is they had developed the first multi-channel disk arrays. And originally they were developed for this print application that we were working on because you had it, there just wasn't enough bandwidth from a data IO perspective, right? So they developed this for the print publishing market. Then as mm-hmm. the technology got faster, it became, hmm, maybe this could apply to, to video. So then, you know, what we started doing was working with some companies that were developing the first nonlinear editing software. And next thing you know, we're producing video on this, this same technology, right? And so from there, I ended up going to what I would call at the time a, a bleeding edge technology that they had developed vector graphics. They were doing absolutely amazing things back in the 90s, early 90s. It was not a, a film made, nominated for a special effects Oscar that was not made on this company's equipment. Matter of fact, one of our biggest customers was Steve Jobs and Pixar. And you know, that was really cool seeing this technology at work, you know, stuff like James Cameron's Titanic and Jurassic Park and things like that. And as employees, we always got free previews at this, at the theater that we had on the campus, right? So that was kind of cool. Yes. It was an interesting evolution. You know, the media and entertainment industry is really interesting. But as I got more into it, I started looking at there's got to be a higher purpose, if you will, for this technology, not just for entertainment value. And so 
I started working with other groups at the company on things like like the, the healthcare team. And so they were using this technology for things like looking at remote robotic surgery on a project they were doing for the army. So how could we bring high quality healthcare out in the field if we have uh, troops deployed out there? And then the other group I got involved with was our, our defense group. And so that's where I started to see the ability of this technology to be used for keeping people safe. So we're taking satellite imagery, we're taking ISR data from planes and drones, and we were merging all this stuff together and we were creating these real-time models that got pushed down to the troops in the field to create real-time situational awareness. Now, Hmm. at the time, that technology was really it was really, really expensive. It was, it was not mainstream, right? But then eventually PC type of hardware caught up and we started seeing this make that same transition that desktop publishing did. So it had the same impact, right? It made content creation and content distribution more widely available, but then it also opened up these other use cases. And that's really the start of computer vision, right? So now we're in this third wave and Adele, what we're doing is we're taking that foundation and we've, we've matched it up with AI and that's where we're really seeing this, this new inflection point. So again, very blessed to have been part of these just three major things that are driving not just the technology industry, but society in general with these, with these tools. Okay. So it's kind of, it's stuck in my brain already. You've always been kind of an image guy, right? You helped people make static Mm -hmm. images. Then you help them make them move. Now you're helping evaluate the things that move. Any chance you'd be interested in going into holographs next and just get that extra dimension, go for the trifecta? Well, it's interesting. We were actually doing holographic stuff at the company I was mentioning where we did, we did video things. So so one of the other use cases that we've looked at was digital prototyping. And for the mm-hmm. car manufacturing industry, one of the things that was really expensive for them is, I mean, they were at that time, you know, in the mid nineties into early two thousands, they were still making clay models of cars, mm-hmm. right? When they were looking at styling and wind tunnel and stuff like that. I'm based around Detroit. So I know people who do that. Perfect. So. So we took the CAD data and we basically, with a holographic projector, I'll never forget, we were in the, our version of the EBC, right? The, the company is working with it at its time. And they basically projected this 3D car on the boardroom table. Wow. And it was just a mind blower. It was really Fantastic. Cool. I love so, it. But again, the technology was super expensive back then, right? Yeah. Now there's the ability to, to do it more cost effectively. Is, is it less exp- Well, I'm sure it's less expensive, but is it inexpensive, like reasonable, or is it still kind of ridiculous? I don't think it's kind of ridiculous. I think it's, you know, and I think it's one of the areas where we're going to see a lot of, a lot of growth. So sure. it's, it's pretty cool okay. stuff. So how did you get into computer vision specifically? How, I mean... The idea of creating that content for entertainment, fantastic, useful, very important, Mm -hmm. and pushes technology forward immensely, right? But then the idea of you can take real world stuff and generate intelligence and automation and, you know, all of that good stuff, that's where we're at right now. And people are still trying to figure out how to apply it. What kind of shifted Mm -hmm. your attention in that direction? Well, was the... You know, it's the old saying, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. So what's a minute of video work, right? At 30 frames a second times 60 seconds, you know, it's in the, what is it? hundred something thousand words mm-hmm. it's worth. So, so looking at it from what kind of insights we can gain from a frame of video is really important, right? It provides a lot of context and that's, that's how I got into the computer vision side of things. It was, it was understanding that there's information buried in here that comes from the contextual aspect of how 
people are moving or where things are or what the type of object is, what direction it's going in and its size, right? What types of things can I infer from that, that information? And that's, that's really what computer vision is, right? I mean, it's, it's really, it's a subset of artificial intelligence that enables computer system to derive insights from video graphics, you know, and other visual inputs and audio input for that matter, right? But it's it's helping the computer see. It's helping it observe. It's helping mm-hmm. it understand the world around it, right? And so by taking machine learning and using neural networks, right, computer vision can actually teach computers to recognize objects, right? They can identify defects or anomalies in something, right? They can make recommendations based on that visual information. And that's really where this next breakthrough area has has been. Okay. So just for listeners that aren't as technologically sophisticated and to get your perspective, how do you define what exactly is computer vision? You mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, and the idea of teaching a computer to see, but mechanically kind of what are the pieces? What are you, what are the limits of computer vision? Like the start and stop of this is a computer vision solution. Yeah. So it really comes from, I've got to have the capability to ingest the data as video You know, the other important thing about video is I have to manage it to a timeline, right? Because the time context is is important. So I need a tool to help me do that. Then I need the AI tools that can evaluate what is in each frame of video. And it really needs to happen. I mean, it can happen different ways, right? It used to happen a little more forensically right? I didn't just the video. Generally, I'd have people looking at it, making decisions about it. But now we're, we're using machines to do that, right? We're using these AI trained AI models to identify objects, colors, sizes, you know, those types of things as we're ingesting the video and take that metadata and normalize it, right? And build it into structured data so we can use machine learning to evaluate it. And that's really where we've made that transition into computer vision, right? It's no longer a, a human looking at a frame going, that's a dog, that's a cat, that's a guy that looks like he's six foot five running north. So, And computer vision is closely tied to the idea of edge because of course, yes, trying to evaluate images of hyperscale data centers or enterprise data centers inside the data center, kind of useless. So you need the cameras, the video feeds to be out in the world, which puts us closer to people and business and interesting things happening. Yeah, it's really about the thing that people are looking at from computer vision. They're looking Mm -hmm. for real-time situational awareness, right? Whether that's from a safety perspective, whether it's from an operations perspective, doesn't matter, right? And the only way to do that is really it's got to sit at the edge, right? I've got to be ingesting it, processing it, managing it there at the edge. I've got to be where that physical world meets the digital world. So with that, what are some of your favorite use cases that you've come across that you've helped people develop? That's a tough one because there's a lot of, there's a lot of good use cases and yeah, I was thinking about this the other day too. It's hopefully I'm not becoming desensitized, if you will, but a lot of this is becoming mainstream. So some of the mm-hmm. cases that seemed wow, like real wow factor, you know, now they're, they're things we do from an everyday basis. But I, I'd say a couple of things to that, right? So, so one is it really starts with understanding the outcome that we're trying to derive, right? One of the things we spent years, like a lot of technology companies do, we talk to customers about the art of the possible, right? We've got this technology. Here's all these cool things you could do. Here's your imagination, right? And at the end of the day, we didn't see a lot of uptick on it. I think it literally scared the heck out of people. So what we did is 
we've had literally thousands and thousands of customer conversations. So we went back through our notes on those things and started looking. And, and what we saw was five key themes emerge and they turned out to be universal. It really didn't matter what the vertical market the customer was in. It really turned out to be universal. So it was about personnel and facility safety, right? So how do I keep my facility and the, and the people in it safe? And like, for example, a use case there that's, that it's interesting, right? It's not, you know, most people think of, of safety as, Hey, I want to make, you know, make sure I'm watching. So nobody breaks in, or if they break in, I've got the footage, right? It also translates right. to things like think about worker safety. One of my favorite use cases is related to a food processing plant. So we help them understand, does the employee have the right protective gear on? Do they have mm -hmm. everything they're supposed to have to be in that area? Is that particular employee trained to be in the area that they're in, right? Are they near any dangerous mechanical equipment that's going to take their arm off? When they entered a, the food processing area, did they wash their hands at the sink before they entered the area? Did they turn the hot water on? Did they use soap? Did they wash for 30 seconds like the sign says? All those things we're able to derive out of the computer vision footage, right? Out of the video footage. Mm -hmm. And so not only did we keep the workers safe, but we kept the consumers safe because now we've got a trained person that's sanitized that None of their body parts ended up in the food processing. <laughs> right. So, the second area of outcomes that we, we looked at was what we call personal experience, right? So what's my experience as a passenger at an airport? What's my experience as a, a fan at a stadium? What's my experience as a, as a retail shopper, right? So there's things like being able to do a targeted digital signage for people at a sporting event, right? And what they found is that actually drove up her event revenue. You know, one of the, my favorite ones was we had a real naysayer company that we dealt with. They're like, oh yeah, this is, sounds interesting. But what they were, they were a luxury goods manufacturer and they had stores all around the globe. And they were like, mm -hmm. well, we do have an issue. Right. And that's that our stores are laid out the same across the globe. Right. And yeah. in the Americas and in the EMEA, we see very performance, you know, similar performance metrics per store. But in Asia, we're not. Why is it? Right. You know, is it cultural? Is there what's going on? So we convinced them maybe you should use computer vision to kind of look at shopper analytics. Maybe they travel in a different direction in the store. Maybe they, interact differently, you know, with the merchandise. And what it turned out was that was exactly it. They interacted differently with the merchandise. It turns out that the store layout that was great in EMEA and in, in the Americas was a bit of an issue in Asia. And these high margin items that they moved in those other locations were just at a eye level. And oh. so when they realized that, People were kind of straining to look at that. And so they looked at the lower margin stuff that was on the shelf below, and that's what they bought. So they changed the store layout, and all of a sudden they had the same results that they had in the other geographies. Wow, that's funny. Yeah. My experience as a shopper, right? You helped me because you relayed out the store. And then the outcome of that was also tied to revenue, right? The third category that we see is, is around operational efficiency. So people are constantly challenging us on, wow, this is great technology, right? But it's got to help me run my business better. And mm -hmm. if you think about things like, like an airport, for example, if I could get one more aircraft a day turned around at the gate, what does that mean to my airport, right? What does that mean mm -hmm. to my passengers, right? If I can get sure. that aircraft ready and they do it with computer vision, right? So so they've got the, the cameras out there already looking for things from a safety and security perspective, but identifying that the baggage car is where it should be, the fuel truck is staged, the catering truck is staged, the guys waving the things are, are out there ready to go, all the personnel that needs to service the plane is in place, 
before the plane arrives at the gate, now they can turn around that aircraft faster. So they've improved their operational efficiency. And again, that has a real impact on dollars. So mm-hmm. back to the, the stadium example, we looked at things like, in some cases, you know, we had a customer that they teamed up with the public transit, regional transit authority in their area. And they started getting information feeds from the transit group. So it's like, So 1,500 people wearing the local football team's jerseys get on the train and you can alert the stadium, then the stadium knows, you know what? Okay, (laughs) I've got this mass of people coming in. Let me get staff. Let me open up a couple of entrances because the faster I get them in there, the faster they're spending money. And as a fan, going back to the personal experience perspective, Mm -hmm. really helps improve my day because I pay to get in and watch the game. So the sooner I get into the stadium too, the happier I am as a, as a fan, right? So, yeah. so, you know, we see use cases like that. The fourth category that we saw is around sustainability. So computer vision's about observing what's going on, but also integrating in other sensor types and looking at what are the things that I can do to, to impact my usage of water, my usage of power, knowing if people are in a particular part of a building, knowing if this area, these gates at a particular terminal, there's no flights going out now. So let me shut down some things. Let me change the HVAC, right? And lower my my carbon footprint. Going back to that, where it connects to operational efficiency. If I'm turning around that aircraft faster and that ground crew's in place, that plane is not idling as long, right? That reduces the amount of emissions coming out of that aircraft, that's got an impact on sustainability. If I'm watching these guys de-ice the plane in the winter, if I can use computer vision to tell when is enough enough, then I'm not Mm -hmm. just spraying chemicals all over the tarmac for the sake of hoping I've got it figured out, right? I've got something providing me. Targeted where the ice actually is, that makes sense. And then the last thing is revenue enhancement. So where can I use computer vision to help me find new ways to make money or increase my profitability? And again, back like to that store example, you know, being able to, to utilize the store layout, how long did somebody interact with the point of sale display? Those types of things can help me impact my revenue. I will share one other thing. So one of, one of my, my favorite stories is about making a difference too. So all these things are, are, are great use cases, but going back to the, the safety thing, there was a case, and I'm not, not going to say where it was, but it was a, you know, it's a fairly reasonable sized city that this took place in. And there's a, a neighborhood that led up to an elementary school. And it was an area that was kind of being transitioned and people were investing in the area. And one of the things that the parents were aware of was they they felt that there was some drug activity taking place in the area. And this is a thing that from a law enforcement perspective, this is six to nine man months of investigation you would normally have to do, having undercover officers and trying to figure out getting the right kind of mm-hmm. search warrants and things like that. And sure. what was amazing in this case was computer vision technology was was fairly new, this video analysis, but they were basically able to put a camera in a very discreet but strategic location. And they used computer vision to determine pathing. So what they were doing is they were tracking every movement on that street by cars, by pedestrians, people on bicycles. And what they saw in a 12-hour period was 287 people went into one house. So either (laughs) those people are the most popular people on the block, right, or something else was going on. So in 12 hours, they were able to identify there's something really suspicious going on here. They were able to get a a warrant based on the video information. They were able to put officers at each end of the street. They were able to identify a couple of people that walked out of the house. They pulled them in. They had drugs. They were able to shut down a drug house in a elementary school neighborhood. 
right? Wow. And that's one thing I've, I've always been proud of that case. So, yeah, that's kind of amazing. So that takes us to one of my next questions, which would be privacy, right? We used to call this video surveillance or computer surveillance, and that sounds creepy mm -hmm. and invasive. So we changed it to computer vision. Don't tell anyone it's the same thing, but we do all that because privacy, security, right? We don't want it to feel creepy or overbearing, but then there are these amazing jumps forward that we can, that we can make, right? I heard about a grocery store that had contracted to have some cameras by the closest freeway exit, and they could check your license plate as you were getting off the freeway so that they had your groceries ready because they knew you were close by. And, you mm -hmm. know, as soon as you pulled into the parking lot, they'd start walking out to where your car was going to be super cool. But they were watching yeah. your car get off the freeway. That's a little okay. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's a trade-off. So how do you make these computer vision applications feel like an enhancement rather than an invasion? Well, like in the, in the case of the, you know, what you were just talking about with the retail example, mm -hmm. that's something that people opt into, right? They're opting yeah. in for the convenience of sharing some data in order to get a higher level of service, right? In other cases, mm -hmm. it's about, we've got the ability to, to do in-band redaction. Right. So if they're not a person of interest, we're basically nobody knows who the other people in the scene are. Right. So you've got the ability to do that. I think the other thing that's really important going back to something, you know, you talked about early on is the fact that having this stuff at the edge presents some real advantages. Right. So the architecture that we've developed is around capturing and processing this data at the edge, but then keeping the data there. The only thing that goes mm -hmm. back to the data center or to the cloud is the inferencing data that you then use to retrain the model. So there's no personal information that gets transmitted. It's the results of the inferencing that took place at the edge. So that data can be secured where it was ingested. And that is huge for data privacy, right? We've, we've gone through GERP, we've gone through, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't realize when we create a Dell validated design solution, the, the ISVs, the application partners that are on our platform, they all go through a thing called a privacy information assessment. So that's where Dell has a whole team that looks at these privacy requirements across the globe and we make sure that the information being captured and managed by these partners is compliant under those rules. So we really take an ethical approach to AI and computer vision, and we really do our utmost to make sure that we're maintaining that privacy. We do it from that perspective, but then we also do it from how we manage the data and keeping it protected on site and not transmitting that data all over a a network. We're just transmitting the inferencing and then sending that retrain model back to those edge locations to take advantage of the, the new information that it learned. Yeah. So, so really a lot of security, of course, and a fair bit of trust mm -hmm. and yes, kind of shared, shared trust models, right? Evaluating one another to make sure that we're all doing the right thing with that data. That makes sense. Since you mentioned trust, our environment is a zero trust environment. We meet you know, NIST standards, FedRAMP standards. These same solutions that we've developed are being used by NATO. They're being used by the federal government. They're being used by various agencies across the globe, especially you know, related to like healthcare information and things like that. So they have to meet these very tough standards. And that's one of the things we've done is make sure that we subscribe to those standards and we're protecting people's privacy as a result. Makes sense. Okay. So let's get kind of one click lower. Computer vision is driven by cameras and we're seeing cameras all over the place. They're generating a ton of data, cars, intersections, buildings, everybody's phone. We just did a, an episode on Duos Tech. So oh, yeah. doing rail car inspection and almost entirely yeah. computer vision, some vibration analysis and stuff like that, but mostly visual inspection, right? There's so much data. 
all over the place. What sort of value do you think is in that data that we haven't thought about yet? Well, there's a couple of things. One is, I mean, not to alarm you, but the amount of data is going to increase, not decrease, right? With like, for example, we're seeing things like LIDAR. Since LIDAR has become a solid state technology, it's got a much smaller footprint. And LIDAR is a computer vision technology. It's the ability to see points in 3D and create an image out of that. And it's now in our phones, which is amazing. Yes. And it ties back to your previous thing on privacy. I think we're Mm -hmm. going to start seeing a lot more integration of of LIDAR in there. So the amount of data is is certainly not going to decrease. And there was a a stat I saw recently from Forrester Research that said 73% of all company data goes unused for analytics and decision-making. By 2025, 75% of all data is going to be created at the edge. 80% of all data created is going to be unstructured. So it's going to be video, LIDAR, audio, those types of things. And 70% of all data right now exist in siloed infrastructures. It's all about this concept of ingest once and get multiple insights. And I think, you know, to answer your question, a lot of the untapped information that sits in this data is going to impact a couple of areas. One is, I think, productivity. So that operational efficiency thing that we talked about. And the other thing is sustainability. I think there's a lot of information coming that could be used for sustainability use cases that isn't being tapped. And then certainly as we work on things like Vision Zero, which is a global initiative to make pedestrians safer in urban areas, since more of the population is is shifting to urban areas, there's a lot of information in there that's untapped. And as we see the power of edge compute increase as we see this federated approach to how we work with these edge-based solutions, we're going to start seeing a lot more integration of that information together. So what am I gathering from the cameras at the intersection? What am I gathering from the sensors, the pressure sensors that are in the road? What am I gathering from things that are telling me how many vehicles, how fast they're going, things like that, identifying Not just that there's people on the sidewalk, but the type of people on the sidewalk, that it's a child, it's somebody that maybe has a cane or a walker or is in a wheelchair. What are those special circumstances? And then how am I going to integrate the data from the vehicles, process that all at the same time to make decisions about how I'm going to control this intersection, what kind of buffer I'm going to give the pedestrian, what kinds of things might I do from a driver assist perspective in the, in the vehicle. So that's an area where I'm, I'm confident we're headed. Do you think we'll get to a point of having like a data mart for video that's available? I, I keep thinking, you know, we have all of these video surveys and digital mapping software and evaluating bridges for safety but then we have tons of autonomous vehicles that are driving around in these same places, collecting the same data with the same as or better equipment. Could we just have something that there's then the question of who owns that data? Is it the car manufacturer? Is it the driver? Is it, I don't know. And how do you reimburse? That's tough, right? But (laughs) yeah, insurance companies want all of that information. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's so much data already being created. How much more do we need to create? How much will we create? That's a different story. But how much do we need to create and how much can we just share and buy and put in the public domain or into a purchase model or something? I don't know. You're bringing up a, a good point. And it's, it's interesting because I had this discussion just this weekend. I was at the International Airport Council speaking on computer vision, right? And how it's going to drive the smart airport of the future. And Between the airlines and the airports, they're looking at how can they make data accessible? Or I talked about before, how can I make the results of the inferencing around that data accessible? Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens in this new paradigm 
with a lot of compute at the edge is I can get a thing that I'll call regional bias. So let's go back to the driving exam. Okay. And hopefully I won't offend anybody, but it's just a fact. The way people drive in Florida, for example, is probably different than the way people drive in California, which is probably different than the way they drive in Oslo, Norway. But if I wanted to have the safest intersection possible, to your point, wouldn't I want my model to be based on all that different data so that I could take every possible situation and be able to act on it? And that's where I think there is going to be a data mark, and it's going to be for things like helping create better models that kind of, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, right? To keep mm-hmm. intersections safer. Look at the credit card industry. Does American Express want Visa to have its data? No. But would they possibly want to make some of the things that they've learned from their models available so that collectively they create a more robust, broad model? Because it helps the entire industry. Sure. So I think you're going to start seeing a lot more things like that. At this airport conference, we were talking about exactly that. Should there be a data mart that helps make information from the airlines available to create better operational efficiency across airports across the globe to impact sustainability, right? Again, if we're Reducing that turnaround time, if we're reducing idle time, that has an impact on the climate as a whole. So sharing of that information, I believe, is going to be more prevalent. And there's already pre-trained models available. This is one of the areas where generative AI gets interesting. You know, it produces its own content. And so I'm able to take a lot of these situations and, again, continually improve and retrain my model. But taking this real world information and being able to integrate it in is what creates more robust analytics over the over the long term. So long, long yes to your answer or to your question. <laughs> Sorry. I love it. And you said the G word, generative AI. I'm being asked a lot lately, where does generative AI fit at the edge? And I've been pushing back on that for the most part because doing things like, you know, evaluating parts for, is this within tolerance? I don't really want that AI to start making things up. But then as an interface, as a human usable interface, sure. Would it run at the edge or just for the edge in a cloud somewhere? I don't know. That's a future, future question. But do you see a space where generative AI would improve, shift, change? enhance computer vision in general, as opposed, I mean, you were talking about kind of generating some, some potential training data and scenarios to test it out with. Cool. Like Mm -hmm. that. Can you think of other spaces where it's going to be relevant in the computer vision space? Well, I think where it'll come into play is from the aspect of, because it's real-time situational awareness that we're trying to achieve There may be things like using generative AI to immediately impact a a model, such as maybe behavioral analytics, right? So if you think about like retail loss prevention, what are things that I can inference and maybe feed back into my model so that I'm observing things that I want to impact and make that model a little more robust because I'm, I'm seeing something, some type of different behavior. Using Gen AI to suggest improvement areas? Yes. Yeah. To suggest improvement areas, right? So as as we get more into that kind of adaptive space in, in artificial intelligence, it's about looking for Gen AI to, to make suggestions about optimization opportunities and improvement opportunities. But I do think for the most part, right now it's a technology that's more applicable to an interaction model, Mm -hmm. like customer service type of applications, how it might be used in a retail thing to impact that. Yeah. In its current iteration, I see it as very consumer to AI as opposed to machine to AI and things like that. Automated responses aren't really going to be its thing for at least some amount of time. Yep. And it's not new. Right. It's something that's been done. I mean, 
The good news about it is it's created a lot of attention around artificial intelligence and some of the things that do exist and yep. how, how we can use them. Yep. Okay. So looking forward, what do you expect coming in maybe three to five years? What sort of use cases do you think customers will be looking for, planning for, trying to work towards? So I think a couple of things around there come to mind. So one is, you know, they're, they're just starting to dip their toe in the, in the water right now, but certainly frictionless shopping, the ability to, to go into a, a retail location and not have to deal with checkout, expediting my experience, you going through the store. That's an area that I see a lot of development in. I also think that as we talked about before, the example of getting into a sports stadium or what we're starting to see in the travel industry with this kind of frictionless, it's identifying me, it's got information about me, it knows information about my ticket, I'm a known traveler, what can you do to help me expedite my process through the airport? The less amount of human interaction from that perspective and the faster you get me through the line and sitting in the lounge, the happier I'll be as a passenger. So I think that that's right. one area we'll see. More automated, personalized services, like we talked about, generative AI is going to help tailor that. And a kind of a, a subset of that is, is this idea of tailored learning and training, coupling that with a computer vision technology like augmented reality, right? I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on that. Take a production line, for example, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather train somebody on the process using a digital twin and using augmented reality and not having them have the ability to lose their arm in some robotic device before they get out on the floor. And I think even for K through 12 and higher ed, we're going to start seeing this type of technology be used for creating more personalized learning models by kind of understanding the responses and the interaction from, from the student. So they'll get better quality education tools. The automation of very routine tasks, I think is another area that we'll, we'll see. I'm not complaining about anything, but certainly doing trip reports and expense reports. And there's a lot of stuff that from a productivity perspective, that if they were automated in using all the AI tools to be, be more robust would help us spend more time working with customers, for example, or working on development of new solutions. So those are areas that I definitely see expanding as we move forward. Okay. Nowhere in there did I hear it will alert my kids when they leave dishes in the sink. And I'm a little disappointed by that. I was hoping that was going to be in the future. That's a bad but... idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the dishwasher. Stop it. Smart, smart stink. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So you've already been a part of three different waves of technology, as we talked about before. Do you have any thoughts on what the next big wave is likely to be in terms of image processing or images? Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be an evolution of this combination of a couple of things going on. So one is the ability to get better quality video data for computer vision. So we're seeing some really interesting technologies and we're, and we're, we're working with one company in particular that's doing some bleeding edge stuff on image enhancement. Like one of the, the demos that's really a mind blower is outside this mall, you're looking at the footage from the camera and it just, it's like, I can see the lit up parking area. I know there's a wall there. That's great. We run it through this processing and all of a sudden we see there's actually somebody climbing over the wall, right? That we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have noticed before. So, but that has to happen in pan for it to be of mm -hmm. any value. Doesn't help me sure. after the fact, right? After the person mm -hmm. got in and did whatever they were intending to do. So that's an area of technology that I see developing being coupled with AI making that transition into getting more prescriptive and more adaptive, right? It's going to be able to, you know, as we talked about a minute ago, kind of 
prescribe solutions or opportunities to, to optimize performance, right? As well as present decision options that are, are more forward-looking as opposed to looking at things from a trend perspective. So it'll be about AI having the ability to help us take advantage of a future opportunity based on its assessment or mitigate a, a future risk. So I also think that this is going to be enabled by a next generation of smaller footprint technology, lower power technology that's able to do real-time analysis at the edge in edge compute devices that have more robust capability coupled with what we're seeing going on from a network perspective, because that's the other element to this. Like we talked about, a lot of the real power of this comes from having a federated environment, really strong compute at edge, but federated together to take advantage of learnings across a, a, a wider area. So that's, that's going to be next-gen network technology that makes that happen. And, you know, we're starting to see some of that with 5G and Wi-Fi 7 technologies like that. I mean, it's like mind-blowing bandwidth, but that's, that's what you have to have for, for computer vision. Cool. And we're going to review this in about two or three years and have you back to see how you did. <laughs> Wayne, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a fun conversation, as always. How can people find you online and keep up with the latest work that you're doing? So, one, feel free to reach out to me. You can email me at wayne.arvidson, which is A-R-V-I-D-S-O-N at dell.com. You can also, we have our team has an email address of computervision.com edge verticals at dell.com. If you've got technology questions or, or want to talk to somebody, then you can also follow me on linkedin.com slash Wayne Arvidson. You know, I post there, I do a number of, of articles, speak at industry conferences and things like that. So that's where I usually post on top of the, you know, the Dell resources. I post links there to some of these talks. And like I said, we just hosted a great panel discussion at the, the International Airport Conference this weekend. So, you know, things like that that are, are available for you to listen in to, on. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time and the perspective. It's, it's been a pleasure. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com slash edge.